welcome to this week's Expert Factor. And now for something a bit different. Paul has deserted us to go on holiday, allegedly to rest up before the budget. I think it's some kind of warm weather training camp for economists. And I'm sure you're all going to miss his sunny optimism as much as we do. Incidentally, if there were any Treasury officials listening, this would be a great time to sneak out some implausibly optimistic forecasts about the UK's fiscal situation. So in Paul's absence, we've decided to go wild and experiment a bit. After the historic developments in Northern Ireland, where power sharing has been restored after a two-year absence of functioning government, I'm delighted that today we're going to be joined by a friend, colleague and just expert over from Belfast to take a deep dive into how that deal was struck, how it will work and what it means for Northern Ireland and the island of Ireland. I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe. And I'm Katie Hayward, Professor of Political Sociology from Queen's University, Belfast. And this is The Expert Factor. Hi, Katie. Thank you so much for joining us, for being our first guest expert on The Expert Factor. Thank you for having me. So after two years of stasis, Stormont is now back in business and we have the first ever Sinn Féin First Minister. Katie, this is being hailed as a historic achievement. Remind us why it is so momentous. Well, Northern Ireland was created just over 100 years ago to have a unionist majority. That's explicitly why the border was drawn where it was around those six counties. And so to have now a nationalist person heading up the executive alongside the deputy first minister from DUP really is extraordinary. And Michelle O'Neill is a, a very strong Republican. She's made no secret of the fact, of course, that she wants to see United Ireland by the end of the decade, I think, is what she said. And so it is quite extraordinary, really, historically significant, especially bearing in mind the journey that her party, Sinn Féin, has come along since the Troubles. And it's been some time since Northern Ireland has had a functioning government at all. I mean, this is a significant moment for the people of Northern Ireland that they're going to have some ministers who can make some decisions for them. Yes, it's, it feels a bit weird, actually, not least because there's a sort of a, a celebration after we get the government restored again. And then there's a sense of, well, what next? What's it going to look like? And very much, I think we've got so many issues that need to be addressed. Funnily enough, I was just speaking to somebody the other day who was wanting advice about something. And I said, I realized, well, you actually could ask your MLA to ask a question in the assembly, you know, and he will get answers for you. And I just thought, gosh, that's so unusual. And you realized how we've been missing functioning government and a functioning legislature. They've got an awful lot of uh, work to do. We know there's been big public sector strikes recently, a lot of demands, a lot of pressure on the public services. So they're, they're coming into a very heavy workload. But simply the fact of having them there gives us a lot of hope that things might yet get better. And just to remind us, we saw, obviously, as you say, the Assembly returning, the formation of a new executive. How does power sharing work in Northern Ireland? Well, that's a good question, actually. Does it work? Yes. <laughs> so, um, so we have to, the whole reason why we didn't have the functioning assembly and executive is because one of the two largest parties can effectively veto their functioning. And that's because the whole system works on sharing power between unionism and nationalism. So they share power primarily in the executive. It's a mandatory coalition. So we have the Alliance Party in there as, alongside the Ulster Unionist Party, the two biggest ones, Sinn Féin and the DUP. And basically, they, they make a lot of decisions together. And particularly at the highest level, the First Minister and Deputy First Minister, they make decisions jointly. And then within the Assembly on big decisions like appointing a speaker in relation to the budget or some other ones which you might touch upon, those big decisions also require cross-community consent, at which point the designation of MLAs as either unionist or nationalist really uh, comes to the fore. So power sharing affects in many ways the, the day-to-day functioning of the legislature and executive. And we'll probably come back to it, but how does the growth of the Alliance Party affect that dynamic? Um, 
So I think this is a so this is partly why I mean the Alliance Party did very well in the May twenty two elections, the last ones we had, almost doubling their MLAs. And this added some momentum behind the requests that they've been making for reform to the way the Assembly works. The Northern Ireland Affairs Committee in the House of Commons did a report there in December which recommended such reform. So recognizing that the simple binary divide really doesn't reflect Northern Ireland society and nor does it reflect the assembly very well either now. So they are wanting to see some reform. And when they're in the executive, there's some hope that it, it makes a little bit of a difference. But well, we'll see. There's, in the past, Sinn Féin, the DUP have, because they're so much larger than the other parties, have more or less managed things between themselves possibly excluding the other parties to a little bit. And that's been, I think, to the detriment overall of the quality of decision making. So there's a lot riding on this one working better. Anand, Paul's not here, but he was tweeting last week about how big the financial settlement was that the government's made available to get Northern Ireland back up and running. Mm-hmm. 3.3 billion in Northern Ireland, I think, translates into something like 120 billion on a sort of proportional population mm-hmm. uh, basis across the UK. Is that enough to deal with the problems in Northern Ireland? Well, firstly, it's a damn sight better than not having it. So I think, you know, it's good that that money is now going. Secondly, it's probably too early to say because we're going to have to see what happens in Northern Ireland. But thirdly, and most importantly, I just think we need to just ponder the human cost of the absence of government for so long. And we're not just talking about facts and figures here. We're talking about people whose medical treatment has been postponed or delayed. We're talking about people in the public services with no pay rises in the middle of a cost of living crisis. So the human cost of this, I think, is sky high and more important, I would say, than the sort of the the, the raw financial figures, that this was a failure of governance and of politics. And it is the people of Northern Ireland who've been on the receiving end of it. And I think given that, I very much hope that we don't end up in the same situation again going forward. But on everything in this podcast, I'm going to defer to Katie. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's notable that the first thing our executive did was ask for more money. (laughs) So, yes, it's a big package and it's bigger than it would have been if the DUP hadn't held out, arguably, which says something, Mm -hmm. given that it was a political bargain rather than a a response to that need. But yes, the, the executive is already making spending decisions without means of gaining revenue. And this is going to be, this is a constant tension. And I think it's going to become more acute because that, that big whack of money is only short term. Mm. And the longer term fixes are going to require proper decision making as well as more money. Anand, what else is in the new executive's intray? Well, an awful lot. I mean, the main thing, as in the government in London, is reacting to the ongoing economic problems that we face to deal with the cost of living crisis. There's been public sector unrest in Northern Ireland and a wave of strikes we saw just before the settlement was reached. Uh, Now, only a limited amount of that falls under the direct purview of the government in Belfast. A lot is in the government in London. But simply playing catch up and dealing with the cracks that would have appeared in public services via the lack of government, I think, is going to take an awful lot of this executive's time. Katie, you can't, you can't agree with me silently. You've got to agree with me noisily because I'm very pleased that you nodded. <laughs> I agree with that. Um, yes, so it, it's quite notable that the health service is the biggest priority, right? And we see this in polling, the NHS and concern for the NHS. And our waiting lists are infamously longer than anywhere else. And there's been awful stories of human suffering, as you say. And yet that health ministerial position 
was left to the Ulster Unionist Party to take up. So Robin Swan, who was minister before mm. during COVID, so he's got that uh, remit. It takes up a huge portion of the budget. But when it comes to sustaining and improving the health service, we know it has to be done. There's mm. been many reports written on it. Will they make those decisions, especially when it comes to closing local hospitals in order to have specialized hospitals accessible to more people, etc.? These are difficult decisions. And it's funny because you'd imagine in a place like Northern Ireland where people aren't necessarily voted back in on performance <laughs> or decisions that they make. Yet, they find it very difficult to make these decisions that are for the longer term good for people in Northern Ireland. So Ooh, you're yeah. channeling Paul ever so well. I don't miss <laughs> Paul anymore. This sort of lack I'm of long-termism, <laughs> failure to think big, you know, failure to think strategically. You are the new Paul Johnson. <laughs> very good, I <laughs> take that. Alternative forms of expertise are available. Um, <laughs> relating to that, Katie, and what we were saying before, various people have suggested it's time to overhaul the Good Friday Agreement because they are somewhat prone to collapse and, and not necessarily conducive to promoting proactive decision-making on some issues. What, what are the sorts of changes that have been proposed and is there any prospect that making those changes might be a priority for the, for the parties now? Can I just add a follow-up? I mean, it seems, I don't know what you think about this, but it seems to me in a way the Good Friday Agreement has to some extent been a victim of its own success. In the sense that now, I mean, Hannah talked about the growth of the Alliance Party, that actually things are shifting or were shifting in Northern Ireland away from this sort of boldly sectarian divide. But the structures in place don't really allow for that, do they? No, precisely. So, yes, we've seen the growth of a middle ground, so to speak, mm. non-aligned. And essentially, I mean, I'm thinking anecdotally, you know, I've been teaching in Queens for a long time now. And just the generation of students I'm teaching now, so there'd be Good Friday Agreement generation. Mm. You have to teach them about the troubles, but you also have to teach them about the Good Friday Agreement, of course. It's 25 years. And there's a discomfort with doing so because you have to sort of reintroduce some tensions. Now, they know they exist, mm. but you're sort of explaining <laughs> why they should not get along so well with each other kind of thing. Yep. I mean, I'm being a little bit facetious. But yes, th there is a sense that the agreement was definitely there for a time. But society has moved on considerably. And yet some of the difficulties in governing Northern Ireland relate to the fact that those institutions were set up for a specific purpose. So in terms of reform, the proposals put forward by the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee are reasonable. There, there was an awful lot of evidence submitted by mm. a range of people in Northern Ireland sort of showing how pressing a concern this is for many. But of course, a lot of the reform would be around not allowing one or the other of the largest parties to hold everything up. That's essentially what it comes down to. And then on the so-called cross-community consent vote in Northern Ireland Assembly, that that middle ground, the non-aligned others mm. of the Alliance Party, that their vote would count as much as a unionist and a nationalist, so weighted yeah. majority. Of course, to have that implemented, you would need to have the two largest parties agreeing to it. And notably, the DUP MPs on that Northern Ireland Affairs Committee wrote an alternative report, you know, they, the minority report. They don't support that reform. So if we're going to have reform, as we have had in the past to the Good Friday Agreements and Andrew's Agreement in 2006 being a notable one, you will have to have all the parties around the table and you'll have to have both British and Irish governments involved. Mm -hmm. Will they do this anytime soon? I really don't think so. I'd imagine we'll be looking for that to happen after a general election in the UK and probably a general election in Ireland as well, mm. in which case you get new dynamics coming in. If Labour was in, maybe more caution from the DUP. If Sinn Féin was in government in Ireland as part of a coalition, perhaps, goodness me, that makes the challenge even more great. So yes, there's a lot of, a lot of unknowns in all of this. So although... 
there is a bit of momentum towards some reform and a need for it. How we get there is actually quite hard to plot out. I mean, I can't help wondering if there isn't a bit of a sort of only Nixon could go to China about this in the sense that in a way it would be easier for a conservative government to make the running on this because they won't be as prone to the sort of attacks that would fall on a Labour government if they started to talk in terms of this kind of negotiation. I don't know. I don't know if I agree with you, Anand, because... Well, editing this out. (laughs) (laughs) Because this government is trusted so little, Mm. is actively distrusted by the majority of people in Northern Ireland, including by many DUP supporters. Mm. And where the government has gone over the past few years has been towards kind of reassuring unionists, and understandably so. But I think that that responsibility of reform, as I say, you need both governments equally there alongside all of the parties. And that's totally at odds with the way that the, the current government has gone about managing the situation all that. So yes, in principle, I can see why maybe unions would be less anxious if the if the Conservatives were doing it, but but mm. I don't know. I think there's just too much distrust there of them. The capital has been lost. Yes. And the reason for that and, and we've gone a full 15 minutes without mentioning explicitly Brexit. It's always there in our hearts though, isn't it? <laughs> Just uh, remind us how Brexit has complicated matters in Northern Ireland. I mean, it's worth saying Brexit has complicated matters across the United Kingdom because all the devolution settlements were predicated on a status quo in which the United Kingdom was part of the single market and the customs union, which essentially blurred borders and made possible the kinds of fudges that are inherent in the Good Friday Agreement. So Brexit was always going to cause trouble. I mean, one of the things I can't, there's a couple of things that I've never quite understood. Firstly, why it took so long for Brexit to become an issue, because from memory, even when Mrs. May was negotiating with the DUP after the 2017 election, Northern Ireland and Brexit wasn't one of the key issues to be. I mean, you know, as ever, the DUP negotiated for cash and got cash, but they didn't flag up, I don't think, major concerns about Brexit at that point. So why did it take so long to become a key issue is one question. And the second, I suppose, is would it have been less of an issue had the UK government not depended on the support of the DUP? Was it always going to be as big an issue as it was? Those are good questions. Um, no pressure. So why did it take so long for Brexit to become an issue? It didn't. In the in the referendum campaign, it was a big issue in Northern Ireland. We just had assembly elections, so, so the parties were a little fatigued. But nonetheless, it was raised, and you know, infamously, like John Major came over and was highlighting the problem. With Tony Blair, I think. With Tony Blair, and you had in August 2016, a letter was written from our first minister and deputy first minister Arlene Foster and Martin McGuinness to Theresa May saying, these are the issues of concern, you know, and your priorities in, in Brexit. And the border was at the top. Mm. And she replied and said, okay, it's crucial for you. It's important for us. Why, when it came to the deal with the DUP, why was why was the concerns around the border not pressed? I think partly because just as the UK itself wasn't dealing with the questions of what mm. do we do with our borders, yep. um, it was seen as, well, maybe it's a bit of a made-up problem or we can manage our way around it without it becoming too complicated. And certainly for the DUP, it wasn't a big concern for most of them. And if you look at where DUP majority constituencies are, they're away from the border. So um, 
so it's not something that was pressing for them. And when we, you know, the research that we've done, you can see that DUP Leave supporters wanted Brexit for the same reason as any Leave supporter in, in England yeah. or Wales. So that's that's probably why it didn't seem to be an issue, because when you have the DUP in a disproportionately influential position, particularly speaking to the whole of the UK, for them, the border wasn't such a concern. I came to a seminar here at the IFG years ago where one senior official was saying one of the things that Brexit has shown us is just how little the civil service understand devolution and particularly Northern Ireland. Do you think that is true, is it borne out by the Brexit process? That actually there's just a lack of understanding about the issues involved? Yes. So originally we started by thinking, gosh, people don't really get the details of European integration mm. and, and don't get the details of the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, but even devolu- even the makeup of the UK. Yeah. And and so yeah, it's still it's it's still surprising, but <laughs> I think I mean it's, we've all been on a learning curve, yep. right? A fairly steep one, and I think this goes to the the big challenge of trying to make policies on the back of big claims that weren't necessarily based in the realities of the situation. Such a diplomat. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, Katie, you've been really across the detail of this as it has gone along, and I've really enjoyed and valued the commentary that you've been able to give on it as we've gone along. But where we've ended up in terms of the deal that the DUP now has, that the government has done, where is that closest to in terms of the different arrangements that were contemplated throughout the Brexit process? Because it's not entirely novel where we've ended up now, is it? It's a really good question. I always go back to the joint report of uh, 2017, you know, the free trade agreement being the avoiding hard border or stay in the single market and customs union or specific arrangements for Northern Ireland. So we're, we're still in the specific arrangements. And in actual fact, I think we've gone even more specific for Northern Ireland because what the EU has done post-Windsor framework is really extraordinary. It's quite exceptional what it's done. You won't get anywhere else uh, treated like this in terms of international trade. None of us could have predicted how far the EU would go when it promised flexible and imaginative solutions back in 2017. I'm not saying that that's necessarily a great thing, but we're going to see more and more evolution. It's going to get more imaginative, I think, as it comes into to being. And the UK government too realises what it's negotiated mm-hmm. for the whole of the UK. And this new deal with the DUP is a little bit of a recognition. Going back to your point about devolution, how does, this, how does Whitehall yeah. stay um, aware of devolution, the possible consequences of policy being made here for Northern Ireland? let alone Scotland and Wales. As I say, it's a sort of slow process of learning, but it, it might be significant in that regard. And I think that's, that's really interesting what Katie says there. Do you think that the EU, in its approach, do you think it has sort of relaxed over time in a sense that throughout the Brexit negotiation, there, there seemed to be a really strong sense that the EU didn't want to set precedents, which might be copied elsewhere. But as it, as it has become increasingly evident how difficult and complicated it has been for the UK to get into this situation. Do you think the EU is now just basically thinking, well, nobody else is going to go through all this to get into the sort of situation we're in now, so it almost doesn't matter as much that we have got this really radical exception to what we would contemplate elsewhere? I think part of it is learning by doing. I think part of it is that e, you know, EU fears that the the, the single market will get flooded with stuff they didn't want in it if they were lax about this have been proven to be relatively unfounded. But I think the key thing that Katie said there is that this is a unique deal for a unique set of circumstances. And it's worth stressing that. 
There are particularities about Northern Ireland, whether it is the fact that the vital interests of a member state were directly engaged, that's to say the Republic, whether it's the EU's role in the Good Friday Agreement, whether it is the sort of haunting danger of a return to sectarianism and violence. There are lots of specific things about Northern Ireland. It's worth stressing that for two reasons, I think. One, because plenty of people are now saying, I mean, the Resolution Foundation and their their big report have called for essentially what Theresa May negotiated with her backstop as a way of saving British manufacturing. The EU, I don't think, are going to give us that. The EU will be flexible for Northern Ireland. They won't be as flexible for the UK. And equally, for those amongst the SNP who argue, well, look, we managed to sort of do something about the border with Northern Ireland. I'm sure we can come. No, you can't come to a deal with the European Union because this is unique. And the EU has gone to great lengths to stress the fact that this is for Northern Ireland and this kind of thing isn't available anywhere else. So they've... They've been flexible in this specific case, which doesn't mean they're going to replicate it anytime soon. And Katie, we've got lots of new mechanisms, bodies, things set up to try to make this all work. You mentioned the Windsor framework. We've got the Stormont Break, Internal Market Guarantee, various different new bodies and so on. How effective do you think this is all going to be? I mean, presumably the proof is in the eating of the pudding. (laughs) Yes. So there's a lot of promises now in the Safeguarding the Union deal, the command paper in relation to the DUP's deal with the UK government. And in a funny way, I think a lot of what's promised there is kind of just like a rational response to the challenges that Northern Ireland faces. So that monitoring panel, what is this meaning for Northern Ireland? The East-West Council... We have no idea how it's going to work. You know, how does it relate to the interministerial committees or mm. the heads of devolved governments um, panel, whatever it's called? You know, all these things. It's getting more and more complicated post Brexit, and so I think the commitment there, and I think I keep coming back to that point. It's just that sort of recognition at last of Northern Ireland that was necessary post protocol, now post Windsor framework. But in practice, how will it work? Some of the other things that are in the protocol and the Windsor framework with respect to the Northern Ireland Assembly, they will be consequential. So there's been a lot of spin around it all, but you mentioned the storm and break. The spin around it is that this stops the automatic dynamic alignment of Northern Ireland to EU law. It it doesn't do that. But it does give Northern Ireland MLAs potentially, a minority of them, the ability to ask the UK government to stop the update or replacement of an EU law that applies in Northern Ireland. It's very minimal, very restrictive in terms of its use, and yet it's being bigged up as something very significant. So funnily enough, I don't think necessarily the practical application of those kind of measures will be as significant as the political debate around the use of them. I was going to say, I mean, if it were triggered, it could be very problematic for a Labour government in particular, couldn't it? You know, post-election. Well, so my colleagues, David Finnemore and Lisa Witten in Queens, have done analysis of how often you could use the Stormont Break. Mm. So going on the past 12 months of EU legislation that applies in Northern Ireland under the protocol, the updates and amendments to those... And if you look at the specific terms of the Stormont break use, how often it could have been applied, and their analysis is it could only have been applied in two cases. Oh, okay. Now, you won't you won't hear that generally <laughs> trumpeted yeah. by many people. Now, and it may, the coming 12 months may be different. But essentially, the point is, if you go specifically on the measures of a significant change to EU law that's applying, that will have a significant and lasting impact in Northern Ireland, there are very few pieces of legislation that fall into that category. So I wonder how often it's going to come before the government. We know that the UP is saying they will want to try and trigger it within the coming month question is if the if it is triggered on the basis of 30 or more MLAs from two parties 
will the UK government just have to say, I'm sorry, it doesn't meet the criteria? Mm. And then how do you manage the fallout? And this is why it all feels a little bit precarious, the, the conditions on which the DUP have come back in. And of course, we've got the great Johnson legacy, which is the consent vote every four yes. years, which just keeps the pot bubbling. And that's happening this year. Yeah. So just, yeah, so it felt like, well, that's some way off in four years after Brexit Day. So yeah, at the end of this year, the MLAs have a vote on whether to continue with Articles 5 to 10 of the protocol. Funny enough, I haven't heard much, I've heard it spun, but I haven't heard much mention of it around the safeguarding the union deal. But yes, I suspect that the DP will still be voting against that's mm. what all our evidence suggests. And so, yes, as you say, this keeps the protocol as a live issue. Not only that, it's a divisive issue in the Assembly. So even though we'd expect that consent vote to go through, Articles 5 to 10 to continue to apply, we know now, thanks to this DUP deal, there'll be a serious independent review that commits to looking at several things, including the impact on Northern Ireland's constitutional status. So it, keep, it keeps the connection between the protocol, Windsor Framework, and Northern Ireland's constitutional status as if it's a live concern, which of course is, is Brexit and the constitutional debate in Northern Ireland is a combustible mix. Yeah, it doesn't help the heal the wound, does it, to keep it... No, nah. it's hard to see. Uh, it's hard to see how that will happen. I remember not long after the protocol was negotiated and the TCA actually in the grace periods and an official saying, well, we're just hope quietly bed in and a bit of fuss to begin with and then it'll just settle down, become very boring. But they're kind of guaranteed it won't. Actually on that, I remember talking to someone in the UK civil service who was responsible for implementing the Windsor framework saying we we call our team Operation Beige because we don't want anyone to notice. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Keep it under the radar. Yeah, not, exactly. Maybe not sufficiently beige. <laughs> Katie, you have just written a piece with some concerns about how the UK government's Good Friday Agreement requirement to observe rigorous impartiality might have been compromised by this new deal with the DUP. Well, what is it that you're concerned about? So I think there was recognition that obviously we needed the Assembly and the Executive up and running again. Every, you know, there's pretty much consensus on that. And recognition that primary concerns were coming from unionism and related to Northern Ireland's place in the UK. And the UK government were the only ones who could deliver something on that. But because this is about Northern Ireland's current position and its future, the principle of the Good Friday Agreement is about, you know, this is a, this is a negotiation that involves people from all communities. And because it's about the restoration of the Assembly Executive, it also involves the Irish government. So that Irish dimension has been recognised since the very beginning of Northern Ireland's creation, but it has also been obviously regularly there in agreements between the two governments with respect to peace in Northern Ireland. And the Good Friday Agreement contains, therefore, principles of parity of esteem between unionism and nationalism. And the point in the British Irish Agreement that underpins the Good Friday Agreement about whichever government exercises power over Northern Ireland, they have to do so with rigorous impartiality. Now, I certainly don't think that this requires the UK government to be neutral or agnostic about the union. And I think it's perfectly within its right to be supportive of unionists and do what it can to enable the union to function as well as possible. And I think there's plenty in this agreement that does that. But there's something else that's possibly shouldn't be lost sight of. And that is that this is a fragile place. And even if you look in the executive and the makeup of it, the first minister and deputy first minister, that, that balance has to be maintained. And I think possibly there's this sense of, well, 
Sinn Féin is now the largest party. Unionism is feeling on the back foot. There's a lot of reasons to feel anxious if you're a unionist, perhaps. So we'll pull in the other direction. But it, it shouldn't be like that. It should be working closely with the Irish government. Uh, that partnership is really key. And the need for cooperation between unionists and nationalists and others. That's all really essential. So I'm just worried that this has gone too far in one direction as if, well, we will counterbalance Sinn Féin or the protocol. And, and as I say, I don't think that's a sustainable or necessarily a wise anyway <laughs> basis for, for managing Northern Ireland's future, not least because that constitutional status may well change. And those principles of parity of esteem and rigorous impartiality will continue regardless of change in Northern Ireland's constitutional status. And unionists will want the same protections and the same parity of esteem were we to be part of a united Ireland. And Anand, what do you think this deal has done for the prospects of that possibility? Now that we have a Sinn Féin First Minister, if she governs effectively, if things get done, do you think that's possible that that will have an effect on attitudes towards reunification? I mean, it's certainly had an effect. And again, I'm going to defer to Katie because she's the one who does the polling Have to on let you this. talk but occasionally, I mean, Anand. Well, no, that's all right. I'm perfectly, I'm a bit of a shrinking violet, as you know. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, what can you say about Brexit and, and politics throughout the UK is it's shaken the kaleidoscope. I don't think we're entirely certain yet where the pieces have settled after that, but they've certainly been moved. And you can see the debate in Northern Ireland is a slightly different debate to what we were having before 2016. You can see some movement in the opinion polls. I think people were too quick to say, oh God, this means the breakup of the United Kingdom, talking either about Northern Ireland or Scotland. But we've charted a slightly different course post-Brexit than we were on pre-Brexit, is as bold as I'm going to be, which isn't very bold at all, but now I'll defer to Katie. <laughs> no, I agree with you this time. That's it. Oh, there we go. <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> Yes, so Northern Life and Time survey data is just brilliant for showing the trajectory here. So expectations of Irish unification have steadily risen since 2016. And what's really interesting is that now the plurality of unionists think that Brexit makes United Ireland more likely, as well as the clear majority of nationalists and a majority of those who are neither unionist nor nationalist. So that expectation of Irish unity is there. And that's not just because of anger at the UK government for taking Northern Ireland outside of the EU against the Remain vote, but also a sense of anger at the UK government for the protocol. Right? Yeah. So there are different, different reasons why people expect United Ireland, but certainly that expectation has grown. It's always struck me as a curious paradox in the Northern Ireland context that those people in whose interests it is for all the talk about the protocol giving Northern Ireland the best of both worlds economically, being the least willing to speak up in favour of the protocol. You would think that unionists, now that we have gone back to having a functioning executive, that we seem to have got a workable compromise with the Windsor framework, would start to make that argument more. But they just don't seem to sort of find it in themselves to talk positively about the protocol. This is, this is a curious thing about that safeguarding the union deal. So whereas the Windsor framework, the prime minister was saying, a bit of the best of both worlds, mm -hmm. you know, that potential unique economic opportunities. With, um, he said that once, didn't he? He got so abused on Twitter for saying that the single market was a great place to be that he never tried <laughs> yes. it again. Yeah. Well, that's, true. that's fair <laughs> enough. It is, I appreciate it's a difficult argument to make. But there's no mention of that in the safeguarding the union. But more to the point, the all-island economy is seen as a divisive and negative concept and, and notion. And for me, it's, it's sad apart from anything else, because very notable figures from a unionist background, 
since the 90s were championing the all-land economy as, you know, trade with your nearest neighbor across a land border makes a lot of sense, yeah. right? And that's how Northern Ireland's exporters have grown over time. Yeah. That's the natural first step, etc. And the Good Friday Belfast Agreement helped that to some degree with Intertrade Ireland, etc. But the fact that it's seen so negatively mm. and that it's seen as a positive win for the DUP, for unionists, for Northern Ireland, that there will be more north-south divergence over time. I just think it's sad because it's written about, that makes it a zero-sum argument, which is what the whole of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement was about, trying to get away from. It's not closer to Britain or closer to Ireland. Now, obviously, within the context of the EU, it was possible, part of an ever closer union, we can be close to both, that's great, they're going on the same trajectory. It is much more complicated post-Brexit, but you don't have to frame the future of Northern Ireland in terms of either one or the other to try and reassure unionists, because ultimately the future of Northern Ireland, it will always be about British and Irish. I mean, people have bizarre metrics for success, don't they? So people will sort of say, well, look, greater trade north and south, that shows that the status quo is being undermined by the Irish and by the European yes, Union, it's whereas true. it's not seen as a, as a positive. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the Brexit debate was a, a lot about the merging of economic and the political, you know, take back control of our borders, et cetera, yeah. et cetera. This idea that this is sort of ideological or political interpretation of borders was, was the only one that made sense. And that has followed through in policy and economic. That's um, the one part of the UK where that really grates is on the island of Ireland. Yeah, of yeah. course. Yeah, it just doesn't work. So, of course, we originally conceived of this podcast as input of experts ahead of the next election, which we're expecting this year. Katie, I'll give you the final word. What do you think, whoever wins the UK election, which we're expecting this year, what lessons do you think they should take from recent history in Northern Ireland and how should they handle all the complex issues we've been discussing today? Right as a manifesto, Katie. <laughs> okay, well, first and foremost is listen visit. You know, I, I think that's a big thing to realise how little you know with respect to the, the makeup of the UK and then the particularities of the Union as it's experienced by Northern Ireland. Because of Northern Ireland's existence within the Union, the UK will always have a fundamentally international aspect to it, if you like. So that that need for thinking about its international policies, etc. And indeed, its domestic policies too, when it affects Northern Ireland, has to bear in mind that Irish dimension. And that doesn't have to be a negative thing or an, a, a pain. It can be a really positive thing. And don't we recognise that that cooperation has been essential to peace in, in Northern Ireland and it's been the biggest achievement of the British government in, in living memory, I think, the achievement of peace. And so bearing that in mind with respect to all the challenges that will arise for the UK in the coming decade would be recommended, I think. Well, that's a appropriate note to end on, I think. And that's the end Slightly of... upbeat, I, I know. I don't like that. Very uncharacteristic for us. <laughs> <laughs> but focusing on the achievements of UK government, that is the end of this episode of The Expert Factor. A huge thank you to you, Katie Hayward, for joining us. Goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from them. See you all next week. <laughs>